0: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to Essex Church on this sunny but chilly January morning. There's a nip outside, but may we find warmth with one another. Here, in this building where this community of Kensington Unitarians meets each week to explore life's big questions, to give thanks, to seek understanding, to find comfort to be challenged or inspired. This is a place for spiritual exploration. What do we bring here this morning? I invite you to think for a moment of how you are today. What life issues are with you? There is so much, isn't there, in life that we Can't change. There's much to be accepted, much really to be endured in life. Yet may we here find a place of renewal, a fresh and loving awareness to bring to that which is. Here in this community, may our hearts be blessed with compassion both for ourselves and for others as we share. We share what it is to be human. Welcome, fellow humans, one and all. As the flame of truth and light and love is kindled here in this chalice, this symbol of our liberal faith the world over, may these qualities burn brightly within us. May they help to illuminate our world. you join now in a time of prayer and reflection. As I call on the spirit of life and love to be with us now and to bless all that we do and say together here today. Guide us, dear God, that we might create together the church of our dreams. The church of the warm heart, of the open mind, of the adventurous spirit. Remind us when we forget that there is so much more to reality and to truth than our limited perspectives can usually comprehend. Help us to be a church that cares that heals hurt lives that comforts and challenges that places no barriers between people but rather offers a genuine welcome to all grant us the wisdom to be a church that inquires as well as affirms a church that looks forward And may we, by our example, inspire courage and hope for living, creating here together a church for all people, a church of the living God, here, now, on earth. Amen. readings um, uh, by an old friend of this uh, congregation, Peter Hawkins, Um, it's called Eating the Menu, and he writes that a little boy had often watched planes taking off and climbing high into the sky. He'd watched them from his back garden, and then it came to the time for his first flight in a plane, and he braced himself for the takeoff And as they started to climb into the air in that aeroplane, he turned to his father and he asked, so when do we start to become small? (laughs) And like that little boy, all of us can confuse the reality with what we perceive from our limited perspective. Gregory Bateson, famous um, he's still alive explorer and philosopher commented that many of us live our lives like a man who wanders into a restaurant eats the menu and then wonders why he's still hungry in today's world many of us spend more time collecting cookbooks than cooking more time reading books of walks than actually walking that is my personal crime (laughs) menus are more predictable more ordered than the rich chaotic nature of life Maps, he says, are very useful when used in their right place. To study maps at base camp before setting out to climb the mountain or to check the next stage of our journey, well that's sensible. But to spend one's time looking at the map when you're in a blizzard or deep in a jungle surrounded by animals, that perhaps is foolhardy. Many spiritual traditions instruct us that it's important to not stay looking at the pointing finger but to look at where the finger is pointing. No wonder then that the uh, Sufi mullah Nasruddin, that the, uh, the wise fool of Sufism, interrupts our collapsing of reality and our apprehension of it by showing the absurdity of confused perceptions. This Nasruddin story, I think, actually did happen, and it involved Picasso, not Nasruddin, but never mind. Whoever, someone, was on a train. So Nasruddin, it is said, became a famous artist, celebrated for his abstract art. And one day he was accosted by a fellow traveller who, who said, ''Ah, oh, you must be the famous artist, Nasruddin.'' ''I have that honour, he replied. ''Well,'' said the stranger, ''why don't you paint things the way they are in reality?'' And how is that? inquired Nasruddin. You know, said the man, why don't you paint things how they actually look? I'm afraid I just don't know what you mean, responded Nasruddin. Well, look, like this, said the man, pulling out his wallet and extracting a small passport-sized photograph. This is my wife. This is the way she actually looks. I see, said Nasruddin, (laughs) taking the photograph in his hand. I see that she's very small and rather flat. (laughs) A few of us are going on a preaching workshop in a few weeks' time. You'll you'll experience a definite improvement in standards after the the workshop, I'm sure. But I was laughing earlier on about one of the things you really shouldn't do from the pulpit is, is go... I've got this really good book. Everybody should read it. And then proceed to read most of it out to people. I think there are limits. What can I say? This is a really good book. It's called The Dance of Deception. It's called Pretending and Truth-Telling in Women's Lives. Um, I think gender has got nothing to do with it. I think this speaks to all of us. And I'm really going to read you just a tiny little bit, if I can find it. That's the other thing that you shouldn't do. Here we go. Truth-telling, Harriet says, the heart of my subject is a central challenge in our lives. The very term truth-telling seems more encompassing, more courageous, more richly textured in meaning than the word honesty. When I say truth-telling out loud, I think of bold and pioneering acts as well as enlivened conversation on the headiest of subjects. For example, what is truth? Who defines what is true and what is real for each of us? Do we have a true self to uncover or alternatively to invent? Whose truth counts? Under patriarchy, women are well-schooled in pretending and deception. We've also developed an extraordinary capacity to tell the truth or at least to whisper it. Reflections on this subject, she says, remind me of the tendency to order our world into dichotomous categories, good, evil, masculine, feminine, yin and yang, gay and straight, and now, pretending and truth-telling. People, of course, though, are far more complex and multifaceted than the polarities or the opposites that we create. Truth-telling is on the one hand closely linked to what is most essential in our lives. It is surely the foundation of authenticity, self-regard, intimacy, integrity, joy. We know that closeness requires honesty, that lying erodes trust, that the cruelest lies are often told in silence. Yet this perspective is only part of the overall view, for in the name of truth... We may hurt friends and family members, we may escalate anxiety non-productively, we may disregard the different reality of the other person, we may move a situation from bad to worse. No, truth is surely a complex subject. But here she says, my focus is on relationship, including one's relationship to oneself. My hope is that you'll join me in examining how all of us engage in deception and how we engage in truth-telling, a subject that is at the heart of who we are in the world and the kind of world this is. And you know this is true nightmare topic to choose, really. We'll be discussing this at the preaching workshop, I reckon. How do you choose? And how do you begin? This is how I'm beginning. There are so many things to give thanks for in life. But when I'm making my own gratitude list quite high on that list, is gratitude for the fact that I've had very little to do with the justice system. I have not been arrested. I had good enough reasons not to sit on a jury when I was called to do so. And I've never had to give evidence as a witness in a court of law. Do you think you'd be a reliable witness? Years ago, when I was working as a teacher, I was asked to observe a history lesson. The lesson was all about the unreliability of witnesses and the difficulty of reaching a consensus about what happened just a few minutes ago, never mind times passed long, long ago. The teacher, unbeknownst to me and to the class, had arranged for a fellow teacher to come bursting into the had good enough reasons not to sit on a jury when I was called to do so. And I've never had to give evidence as a witness in a court of law. Do you think you'd be a reliable witness? Years ago, when I was working as a teacher, I was asked to observe a history lesson. The lesson was all about the unreliability of witnesses and the difficulty of reaching a consensus about what happened just a few minutes ago, never mind times past long, long ago. The teacher, unbeknownst to me and to the class, had arranged for a fellow teacher to come bursting into the room at some point and start arguing about an issue, some wrong that the first teacher had allegedly done. When this happened, it was a real shock, especially as the angry teacher who stormed into the room at one point was so annoyed that he picked up a pencil case from the desk and he waved it about in a threatening manner before shouting an unpleasant threat and then marching out of the room, slamming the door as he went. The first teacher apologised to us all for what had just happened, then went on teaching the lesson just as before. It was a good 10 minutes before she stopped and then asked us to write down what we'd witnessed earlier. What had been said? What was done? What was the angry teacher wearing? And when we all read out our replies, the point of the lesson was obvious. Even just 10 minutes after that incident that we'd all witnessed very closely, our accounts of what we all believed had happened varied greatly. And what was most noticeable to me was that we all believed that our varying accounts were true. He was wearing a tweed jacket. No, it was made of denim. He made a physical threat. No, he simply picked up his own pencil case that the other teacher had taken without asking. And so on and so on. Now psychologists, as you can imagine, have much to say about the ways that we human beings remember events and how very easy it is to implant false memories in someone's mind. There are lots of these experiments to find on the internet, but one of my favourites is is one that was done in 2002 um, and that found that up to 50% of us could be convinced that we have had an experience when we really have not. The study was called, or when it was written up, it was called, A Picture is Worth a Thousand Lies, and um, the scientist, Kimberly Wade and her colleagues, used a doctored photograph of a fictitious, fictitious balloon flight to implant false memories. When shown a photograph of themselves as a child on a hot-air balloon trip with family members, half of the people questioned started to remember that they had been on that trip. (laughs) We humans are easily fooled, and few of us prove to be reliable witnesses when we're put to the test. And if we struggle to give accurate accounts of, of dramatic events, and if we can be convinced by a photograph that our own memory is false, well then we do have to question, I think, our ability to witness our own lives or the lives of others. For indeed our lives are patchworks of stories and events and interpretations and much of the personal growth and development work that's so popular today revolves around the search for these stories and for their source. Who told you that you were no good at dot, dot, dot? Fill in the gap for yourself. For most of us have been told, haven't we, at some point, or have told ourselves, that we cannot or we can do certain things or be a certain way. Families share such stories when they label one child the quick one, or the sporty one, or the artistic one, or the funny one, or the clumsy one. Teachers and friends add to the picture, and by the time most of us are adults, we have a pretty clear and a pretty fixed idea of who we are. And we do the same for those around us our friends, our partners, our neighbours perhaps most obviously, are politicians. For it is part of human nature to think that we know who these people are. We treasure our judgments of them. We hold them as truth. But can we really know that this is true? This question, and all the questions on that little pink um, card that you were given when you came in, it's asked by an inspirational woman called Byron Katie who leads sessions around the world on a method of inquiry called The Work. Her own life experiences led her to these questions. In her thirties apparently she around her. Our attempt to find happiness is sometimes backwards. We hopelessly try to change the world to match our thoughts about how it should be when we can Katie says, instead question these thoughts and meet reality as it is. So Barbara Katie's method, and I am no way able to properly describe it to you, so really you may as well stop listening now and rush off to one of her workshops, or at least access her website and have a, a deeper look. But her method, and I quote, is a way to identify And question the thoughts that cause all the suffering in the world. It's a way to find peace with yourself and with the world. The problem that she identified in human thinking is the way we struggle with what is, we find it hard to accept reality. Katie describes this as a bit like trying to teach a cat to bark. You can try all day long to teach that cat, but in the end is going to look up at you at some point and go, meow. Wanting reality to be different, she says, is hopeless. Okay, I wonder if any of you have these sorts of thoughts. Or maybe you can fill in some of your own. Here are some of mine. People people shouldn't drop litter the government should be kinder to poor people there shouldn't be wars I should be, and again fill in your own gap, what will you choose, more popular thinner, more intelligent younger happier, healthier more successful, richer fill in those gaps what should you be On the card you were given earlier, you'll you'll find the four questions that form the basis of Katie's method of inquiry. And you take a statement and you question it. The question you ask yourself, let's take, people shouldn't drop litter. Is it true? Possibly, possibly not. Can you absolutely know that it's true? That's the point where you have to ask yourself, well, who says? Are there circumstances when it is advisable to drop litter? etc., cetera, et cetera, taking it deeper. But here we come to question three, and this is the crucial one. How do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? And of course, the truth that she's trying to get at here is that when we believe that things should be a way that they are not, we are immediately in tension and often in distress if we think that people should do this or shouldn't do that, we are battling with the reality of what is. The reality is some people drop litter. And who would you be, the final question asks, who would you be without that thought? And of course who we would be is somebody who no longer reacts in an irritated fashion when they see dropped litter. We would be somebody who accepts the pavements of central London as places that collect a great deal of litter and then people are paid to pick it all up again each day. Finally, Katie suggests that we experiment by turning our fixed thoughts around. So in the case of litter dropping, that would simply be people do drop litter. Maybe it's okay to drop litter. There are certainly circumstances in which it is okay to drop litter. And at that point, she says, if we turned our shoulds and oughts around, we may well experience a sense of peace, a feeling of lightening up, of humour even. I've got some handouts in case you want to know more about this later, and I do really recommend um, her website, and of course this method is not just her method, it's got ancient origins. Old Socrates, standing in that marketplace of Athens, was renowned for his methods of inquiry, using what later became known as the Socratic method of questioning. People would come to Socrates, it said, with one question and leave with dozens more to ponder upon. And I think Socrates would be intrigued by our postmodern society that continues to prize truth with a capital T, yet is painfully aware at the same time of the plurality of truths that exist in our world today. Going back to history teaching, for example, children are now taught that truth is relative, that history tends to be written by the more powerful, by the victors of any battle. Truth, and in this sense, no longer exists. We can't actually find it. Rather, there are truths, And these multiple truths are created by our language, by our societies, both by individuals and groups, and by our cultures. All we can then say, perhaps, is, well, this is true for you, or for me. (coughs) Now, this sort of inquiry is the stuff of philosophy classes, and we could, and probably will, spend the rest of our lives exploring the nature of truth, one way or another. And I've come to think that, yes, Truth is relative, but exploring the nature of truth, both my own and other people's, that I think is a really important spiritual practice and that such practices can take us, strangely, to a deeper level of truth, beyond hope, beyond fear, beyond any need to be right. It's then too simple, I think, to say that there is no one truth. Now, better perhaps just to keep exploring and questioning, both alone and in conversation with other people, with humility and with ever-open minds. This is the spiritual path of Zen Buddhism and Sufism and contemplative Christianity. It's a paradoxical path that encourages us to unlearn all that we think we know, all that we hold dear, all that seemingly identifies us, in order to search within for a sense of some deeper truth, some wisdom that is there to be discovered when we let go of our minds and their ever-busy theories and ideologies, when we release that oh-so-human and that oh-so-desperate need to find the answer and for that to be the right answer. At this deep level of inquiry, I come to believe the possibility that perhaps you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Amen. So if here you have found truth, then offer it humbly onwards to the world. If here you have found love, then pass that warmth to another before this day is done. If here you have found inspiration, then allow it to flourish within you, that its blessing may bring fresh insight and possibility in the days to come. Amen. Go well, and blessed be.